Hello and welcome to Paperboys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. Every Thursday, we go to the source of the story to open up the work behind beautiful new discoveries and cut through misinformation in the media. I'm your host, Charlie, and today I'm bringing in a paper about negative mass dark matter. I'm James. I have not read this paper, and I have no idea what negative mass dark matter is, but it sounds out of this world. I will enlighten you about this dark matter, James. Ooh, okay. Cannot wait. James and I are both PhD students, and we read a lot of papers in our own research. And so we started this podcast as a way of sharing our love for science with anyone else who wants to learn about these discoveries that affect all of us. In short, we are the paper boys. So, James, strap on your thinking cap, because this one is hard to wrap your mind around. All right, thinking cap is on. Good. That looks awfully a lot like a pair of headphones. Yeah, it's either helping me think straight, or that's just cutting off the circulation to my brain. But. Okay, good. I've, you, you might feel like your brain's gone numb at the end of this episode. but uh, So I'm going to be talking about this paper, which introduced not really introduced, but has talked about this theory of negative mass. Negative mass. So I'm thinking like mass is heavy, negative mass is anti-heavy. Yeah. I mean, there's no good word for it. It's not light. That's for sure. Because that would just be mass. Because that would be mass. Um, Whoa. This is getting pretty zen. Yeah. Before we dive too deep into this and melt your brain, make sure you stay tuned to the end of this episode. We have a great grad student highlight coming up. Yeah. We'll be joined by Andrew MacDeasy, who is a PhD student at the University of Washington in the Department of Civil Engineering, definitely stay tuned to hear about his research. It's groundbreaking, you might say. Ooh, I'm going to assume that that's a pun of some kind. You'll just have to stay tuned to find out. Yeah. But now, this paper that I want to talk about today actually could be groundbreaking in the metaphorical sense. Really? Yes. This is one of the coolest papers that I've read for this podcast. Wow. I mean, that's saying something. Read a lot of papers. Yes. We are becoming quite the paper experts. What about it sort of on a high level makes it so groundbreaking? So you know how you hear like these quotes from famous scientists throughout history who always say that theories that are more elegant tend to be more true? I mean, that's the worst paraphrasing of something that many people have said in beautiful words. It's like they say, you know, it's the most elegant paraphrasing that's... (laughs) That is, yes, but no, no, I I know what you mean, though. Like, that was one of the reasons that people were so astonished by Einstein's findings, right? That it was so simple and elegant equals MC squared. Yes. And what, you know, a lot of scientists today are looking for this so-called theory of everything, like the grand unifying theory that ties together, I think, the discrepancy is between quantum mechanics and gravity stuff. I'm not really sure. But they always say there's been a lot of like proposals for, oh, well, here's what we think the answer is, like string theory. Or there's these crazy like 128 dimensional hyper shapes that have some weird symmetry to them. And everyone says like, well, those are good theories, but they're really not simple enough to be the true underlying nature of nature. Yeah, it's kind of like if you have two dots, you want to just draw a line between them to show the connection. But you could also just go out in 128 dimensions and (laughs) draw this crazy thing that connects the dots, but in a very weird way. And so this paper is 
to my very uneducated physics mind, looks like something that could be that line. Really? That ties a lot of things together. Now, I don't know if this is so-called the, the grand unifying theory, but this is one that explains a phenomenon in physics that has been perplexing what's known as cosmologists for a long time, which is dark matter. So is cosmology like me getting my horoscope? Yeah, it's, it's basically that. Okay. So <laughs> no, like, no, cosmology. Hi, James, I'm a cancer. <laughs> no, cosmology is like Einstein was a cosmologist. Okay. So cosmology is. It's, it's the study of the universe, essentially, and the physics that govern the way that our universe came to be and currently is. So like the Big Bang, people who study the Big Bang, it's a big physics question, but that's cosmology. Okay, so it gets into that very philosophical realm of like, what is existence? Like, what does it mean that we're here today? Right. You know, and in these papers, they talk about things like virtual particles. Whoa. Like, there's a great little footnote in here. So the paper's all about negative mass. And he has a footnote here that says, a particle with negative mass is not to be confused with a particle of negative mass squared. Such tachyon particles have an imaginary mass and are not considered in this paper. So like these people deal with things like imaginary mass on a daily basis. <laughs> so I deal a lot with like imaginary numbers and that's about the maximum that my mind can handle in yeah. electrical engineering. Yeah. There's a couple other little throwaway lines like it's not clear if a negative mass particle traveling backwards through time would appear to have a positive mass. And I'm like, wow, I'm like, what? <laughs> Every <laughs> single on. word in that is like would take me a week of just like. It wouldn't take me a week. It, violates, it would take me the rest of my life to like just sl- silently contemplate. I know. It violates all your intuition, but Whoa. somehow doesn't violate any physical laws. Hmm. So, okay. So let's, uh, so I've given too much teaser here. I, I want, know. let's talk really about what this is. So let me give you some of these headlines. So now this headline actually is from an article that was written by the author of this paper, whose name is Jamie Farns. He's a, he's a researcher at Oxford University. Oh, I've heard of that. Yes. Small little town in England. Cool. Uh, the headline is, Bizarre dark fluid with negative mass could dominate the universe, what my research suggests. That's a very scientific headline in the structure. It is, yes. And yeah. so now uh, this paper was obviously picked up by tons of news outlets. So one of them is Motherboard. They said, A new theory unifies dark matter and dark energy as a dark fluid with negative mass. And then we've got a good old clickbaity one from Express. Dark matter mystery solved. Dark fluid could permeate the universe and keep it together. Ooh, that's interesting. Okay, so dark fluid, is that sort of like the ether of the universe that they're getting at? Like this sort of ubiquitous something that's everywhere and it kind of is actually. Yeah, it kind of is. So let me give you a little primer on so dark matter and dark energy. Yes. In our observations of the universe, we have found that the things you can physically see that emit light only account for about 5% of all the gravitational force that we observe in the universe. So things that emit light or that you can visibly see only account for 5%. Yes. All the planets and stars and galaxies, everything that you see, there's something else out there that's producing a lot of gravitational force that we can't see. And this has been just ubiquitously dubbed dark matter and dark energy. So dark matter is actually what they think is like something that physically has mass that is causing gravi- gravitational forces. And dark energy is some strange force that's causing the universe to expand at an accelerating rate. Okay, so we see these celestial bodies moving and being pulled in these directions. But if we account for all the mass that we know of, 
nothing like the equation doesn't add up oh it does not add up at all and so by 95 percent, by 95 percent. so we kind of wave our hand and say well there's this dark matter out there but no one's ever actually observed it obviously that's why it's dark right right and we haven't been able to detect a dark matter particle or or anything that physically reveals itself to us interesting okay i guess because yeah we usually look at light or radio waves or their interaction yes huh that is puzzling yeah. So now this paper by Jamie Farns, he published it in the December 2018 issue of Astronomy and Astrophysics, and it's called A Unifying Theory of Dark Energy and Dark Matter, Negative Masses and Matter Creation Within a Modified Lambda CDM Framework. I'm going to need you to break that one down for me. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack in there. So Modified Lambda CDM Framework. Lambda CDM refers to the current theory of how our universe works. It's the current cosmology, quote unquote. Okay. So CDM just stands for cold dark matter. And lambda refers to this cosmological constant that came out of Einstein's equations when he developed them. Hmm. It was this constant that came out in the math and he said you need to assign it some positive value in order to account for the universe being static. But then a couple years later, this guy Hubble came out and discovered actually the universe is expanding. It's not static. Wow. So in Einstein's day, they thought the universe was static? Yes. But then, you know, he was still alive when this discovery was made. And so Einstein, after learning of the discovery, he said, oh, wow, I was totally wrong. This cosmological constant just set it equal to zero. And then he famously called this his biggest blunder of his career. Really? Yes. It's just this sort of random constant he had to plug in for everything to work? Basically, yeah. But it turns out that he actually wasn't wrong. So today, they still do use the cosmological constant. They don't set it as zero. That's this lambda value. Uh, because we now know that not only is the universe expanding, it's expanding at an ever-increasing rate. Wow. Which this lambda accounts for. Okay, wow. So it's not only is it expanding, the rate at which it's expanding is changing too. Yes. You've probably heard about like redshift in galaxies and that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. what they do is they look at galaxies and you can observe whether they're moving towards us or away from us based on how much their light is shifted. And you call it a redshift because it's like a Doppler effect, which we've talked about on this show before. But it's moving away from you. And so that wavelength gets is getting pulled apart. And so what they have found is that galaxies that are further away from us are moving faster than galaxies that are closer to us. Wow. And so the further you look out, the faster everything's going, which means that the at the boundaries of the universe, which I don't know if that even exists, but you keep looking out further and further, everything is just getting pulled apart faster and faster. I'm getting that I'm getting that weird eerie feeling. I know it talks about a little the size sick, of the universe. Right? Yeah. But what's interesting is so Einstein in 1918 had a quote. He said a modification of the theory is required such that empty space takes the role of gravitating negative masses, which are distributed all over the interstellar space. But then just one year later, he had said something else about his equations that essentially said, like, this lambda is just an artifact and doesn't really have, like, a physical meaning. So it sounds like he was back and forth then. He wasn't even back and forth. He just, he had this one insight and then he kind of just said, like, no, I don't, that's not right. Hmm. Um, so now this Jamie Farns guy wants to latch on to this negative mass idea and see where it takes him. Okay. So this is sort of an exploratory look into if this exists. Assu like assuming it exists, what are the consequences? Yes, exactly. And so he starts out by giving kind of like an intuitive idea of what 
negative mass would even behave like. And this is, I say intuitive, but it's really not intuitive. So you're familiar with the way that gravity works between positive masses. Yeah, you can sort of imagine a warping of the space-time fabric. So you think of like... Well, even don't even get that complicated. Just like you have two... Two things come together. Yeah, you have two planets and yep. they both have a positive mass. They attract each other. I just bring this up because I was watching an awesome like outreach video for how to explain gravitational waves. Oh, have you seen this? I think so. The The one with the sheet stretched and then you put a big weight in the middle of it. Yeah, and then you use marbles and stuff. Yeah. It's really cool. We can link that on the site. Yeah. But, okay, so gravity brings things together. Right. So you have forces are acting towards each other, which causes an acceleration of those objects towards each other. If you had two negative mass particles, they would also attract each other, and that force would also be acting towards each other, but the acceleration would be away from each other. So what that means is that if you had a big blob of negative mass, if you pushed on it, it would move towards you, not away from you. Uh, this is like so weird already. It's weird. I know. You're one description in. <laughs> yes. Okay. Now, but you know, you haven't even wrapped your head around the idea of two negative masses. Now imagine what happens if you have a positive mass and a negative mass next to each other. They're going to cause a force that acts away from each other, like they're going to push away from each other. And so that's going to cause the positive mass to move one direction and the negative mass to actually follow it. Oh, because if the positive mass moves away from the negative mass, that would be like an attractive force in negative terms. In negative mass terms, it kind of is, yeah. So like the forces are in opposite directions, but the net motion that results from those forces is in the same direction. And they're accelerating, so you end up with this runaway motion. Because they doesn't, can never actually come together. Doesn't this violate, like, normal laws? It's funny you ask that because he makes a very specific point of saying this does not violate any known physical law. Whoa. This conserves momentum. It conserves energy. It conserves mass. Okay. That's amazing. Well, yeah. I mean, if it actually exists, then it's not violating anything because it's real. But Right. But okay. even just painting this simplistic picture... You haven't had to call on any new theory to think about it. Wow. And the reason why he's suggesting that negative mass could be a good candidate for cold dark matter is that it physically cannot coalesce to form structures because they're always repelling each other. So, Oh, so you wouldn't get these large celestial bodies like you see with normal matter? Right. So like a star happens because all that mass comes together. It gets so heavy and dense that you start fusion, which gives off a bunch of light. And that's what you see. But negative mass particles can't come together like that, and so you can't produce fusion, you can't produce light. There's nothing to make you be able to see these masses. Okay, wow. I mean, when you think about the size of the universe and these phenomena that's happening, it makes sense that something like this would exist. Yes, and he, he kind of makes that argument too. He says that everything that we observe in nature is polarized in some way. Like when we talk about electric charges, there's positive charges and there's negative charges. When you talk about magnetism, there's north and south poles of magnets. That's essentially like a positive and minus charge for magnetism. Mm -hmm. Why should we expect it to be different for something fundamental like mass? And so a lot of evidence that has been found for negative mass over the last century has essentially been tossed out because they say, well, that's an unphysical result. So we're going to go with the more reasonable explanation here. You know, like if there's two explanations and one of them is negative mass, you're going to throw out the second explanation. Yeah. Yeah. So Farns has proposed that 
well, what if there is this negative mass out there? And what if that's dark matter? And so he wants to take that initial idea and carry it through as far as he can to see if it would end up producing some of the things we actually observe in our universe. So he starts out with some theory here, and he essentially just re-derives Einstein's equations. But in Einstein's equations, there's a term somewhere in there that accounts for the mass density of the universe. And Farnes just takes that term and expands it out into two different terms that are just the positive mass density and the negative mass density. So just the sum of those two is the total mass density. Okay. Mathematically, that makes sense. Sort of the same way you do it with uh, real and imaginary numbers in certain instances, like if you're talking about dielectric properties or something like that, you have the real and imaginary component. And Yeah, you could. I guess you could think of it that way, except in this case, they're both real. They're both real, of course. Artifacts, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So then he treats sort of three cases of this, which is one is that your positive mass term is larger, and so you have an overall net positive mass of the universe. And then there's also a case where the two terms are equal, and so the universe actually has no mass on large scales. And then the third case is, is that you actually have a negative mass-dominated universe. Whoa. What would that look like? The negative mass or the, or the massless? Either. Or So technically, are we in a mass-dominated universe? Well... We believe that, yes, we're in a mass-dominated universe because we don't know of negative mass. But so that's like the standard cosmology, what we have now. Mm-hmm. But then he looks at these two other cases, and I won't go into the details too much, but I thought there was, some, there was a really interesting quote in the massless cosmology part where he essentially says that if there's no net mass of the universe, then that means that the Big Bang is an energy-conserving event, which in which case it would just be this extreme vacuum fluctuation you know i don't really understand the physics but it's like essentially that if there was just a big vacuum of nothing which is massless but i guess you get these virtual particles and this is where all the weird physics stuff that i don't understand comes in but you can have like an instability in a regular old vacuum where like something crazy happens and he's saying that the big bang could just be a massive version of that Wow. I mean, so he just summed up the full history and future of the universe in like three words. As just a blip. So he, so the quote here, and this sounds like something out of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's like so wry. He says, this implies that our universe is just one of those things that happen on occasion, and we can simply think of its existence as being illustrated by a one billion sigma statistical event. Just happy to be here, man. I know. It kind of makes you feel small, doesn't it? Yeah. One billion sigma event. Yeah. So I don't like those odds. I know that reading that sentence kind of. I had to put the paper down for a second. Just, (laughs) just go in the fetal position for a few seconds. Yeah. Call the wife and kids. You know. (laughs) (laughs) Honey, I love you. (laughs) Wow. I'm not going to complain about a bad day anymore. I know. So now, moving on from that, he now kind of makes like a real assertion here that like is actually an assumption you have to rely on. He says that in this cosmology he's proposing, new matter is created continuously in the universe. Because what we observe is that as as our universe is expanding, we're noticing that the overall mass density of the universe is not changing, or the overall energy density of the universe is not changing. So you'd expect that as this thing expanded out further and further, that all that energy would kind of get dispersed further until energy grew very low. But we don't actually see that to be the case. Wow, so it's not like the energy is just being stretched thin. No, it's like there's actually something that's blowing up the universe. Wow. That's inflating it, you know? So something's being injected. And so that's why he says that if negative masses are the explanation for this, then it's because 
they are continuously popping into existence everywhere throughout the universe. Okay, that's crazy to me. And this is where my like intuition is faltering because you think of this creation of something new and you think that it's violating the law of like energy conservation. But then you probably have to think about it in an inverse term and oh, stuff yeah. is being conser- conserved. And this was my kind of biggest hang up with the paper was this one assertion here. But again, I don't know nearly enough about this to say that that's a crazy thing. I'm sure it's not crazy at all because why would this extremely well-respected scientist say it? But I gather from what he said that it doesn't violate conservation of energy and conservation of mass because it's already known in physics that matter creation can happen. I think that it comes at the expense of gravitational fields. Like the energy comes from somewhere else that's just not like a physical mass moving. Oh, okay. So that makes a little more sense. I I mean, in a hand wavy, I kind of understand, but don't really understand. Yeah, way. I'll just take it at face value. It's not It's not breaking any laws. Okay, I trust you. One quick question stepping back. Do you know how they measure energy density in the universe? I have no idea. But I think this is like when you hear them talking about cosmic microwave background and they're doing observations with telescopes and stuff like I think that's they're measuring the background temperature of the vacuum and stuff. Okay. He doesn't really talk about swath of sky and yeah. He doesn't really talk about the experimental side of things here. He's more just proposing this theory. Um, He does later talk about a way that you could test this theory, which I really hope that someone does one day. Oh, neat. We'll get there. Now, he takes his theory and he applies it to what's called a galaxy rotation curve. So in the study of galaxies, galaxies are spinning. And this spinning is essentially just the effect of all these different stars that are orbiting the center of the galaxy. The same way that Jupiter has, you know, 50 moons orbiting it, the galaxy is just a very dense center with billions of stars orbiting. And we understand the math behind orbital mechanics very well. And we expect that as you get further from the central mass, your velocity should decrease as the one over the square root of the radius. Mm -hmm. And so that's what's called the uh, galaxy rotation curve. It's this one over square root function that you'll see if you plot velocity versus radius. Okay. But what's really strange is that when we observe galaxies spinning and we plot the velocity of that spinning it does not show this one over square root of r dependence. We actually see that it's very flat, like it's like in the outer reaches of a galaxy, that velocity is staying the same no matter how far out you get. Oh, okay. So it's sort of out of sync with our normal understanding of orbital mechanics then. Yes, which rely on, you know, Einstein's and Newton's gravity theories. So that's one of the main reasons why we even think that dark matter exists, is that there must be more mass that's inside the galaxy than what we actually see. Wow, okay. Be- because more mass would cause a higher velocity at that at those further out distances. And it's like this cumulative effect where that the mass has to be everywhere, not just like more mass in the center, but it has to be constantly throughout this entire galaxy. This is crazy. It's starting to actually settle in for me how big of a mystery this is. Like We think we understand orbital mechanics very, very, very well. Like we send spaceships to Pluto and Saturn and Mars, like with the InSight landing. We understand it on the scale that's relevant to us, but yeah, galactic scale, no way. But that's amazing. Like how often do you just take for granted how much we know every day when you're walking around? But like we are in a galaxy and there's this huge mystery of like things are rotating at speeds and we don't know why. 
Yeah. I mean, so my, my field of study is plasma physics. And whenever anyone asks me, wait, what is a plasma? I say plasma makes up 99.9% of the observable universe. Like the sun is a plasma. Every star is a plasma. And so I'm always thinking like, oh, you know, we just live on this weird rock where like everything is made of like physical matter, like solids and liquids and gases. But in reality, everything's plasma. Even that is like these physicists would say to me like, oh, like plasma, please. Like everything's really dark matter, you know? Wow. They'd go like, you know plasma that we are all super familiar with, you know, because that's what we see in the sky. Uh, (laughs) It turns out that, you know, 99.9, well, it's really 95% of the matter is actually dark matter. And I'm like, whoa, (laughs) you know? (laughs) It's just, you take it one scale above and it's like everything you think you know is just out the window. Yeah, exactly. Like, and I thought I was, I thought I was so smart. You know, I was above it all, right? Mr. Fourth State of Matter. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, Back to this galaxy rotation curve, though. He actually derives a new equation for that velocity as a function of radius, like the basic orbital mechanic equation. He re-derives it from Einstein's first principles, but including that negative mass term, Hmm. or rather the cosmological constant. And he finds that that cosmological constant comes in again as a linear scaling with radius. So as you get out to a really far radius... If you have a negative cosmological constant, which is what negative mass particles would suggest, you end up with an increasing velocity as a function of radius. And so he runs this... Oh, wow. Yeah, so he runs this math for a bunch of different potential scenarios for a galaxy rotation curve, and he gets a scenario that matches what we see in reality. That's really clever and very profound. Yeah. So did he just provide one simulation case then? Or did he have a couple different sort of observations where the simulation matched? Well, so this was not even so much a simulation as it was just running this one analytical equation and saying, like, if we have negative masses and it's like a relatively, you know, close to massless cosmology, then, then yeah, like, look, our curve looks very similar to what we see in effect. But then he takes this whole idea of negative masses and he creates, like, a simulation of a galaxy, essentially. So it's called an n-body simulation where he literally just creates like he uses Python, like which is just a very a basic programming language that anyone can install on their computer. And he creates this model where you have 50,000 particles that all have either a positive mass or a negative mass. Okay. And he just like starts this simulation with some initial state where they're all kind of evenly dispersed and just lets it go and sees what happens. Wow, this is a real cliffhanger. What happens? So... He sees that these particles coalesce in such a way that the positive masses sort of come together in the middle and all the negative masses get sort of pushed around to the outside and form this large halo around this inner galaxy out to like several times the size. And so what that would mean is that if that's what is happening in reality is that the reason why you're able to have these stars that are moving so fast at the outer reaches of the galaxy without being like flung off into space is that there's actually negative masses pushing them inward. Whoa. So if you think of like the galaxy as like spinning, if it spins too fast, then you're going to then you're going to lose star like the centripetal force will just like fling them off, right? Yeah. But something's keeping them there. And this simulation is showing that it's actually a big halo of negative mass around the galaxy that's keeping everything contained. Whoa, interesting. So this would explain partly then why we see galaxies with certain shapes? You know, I don't know if 
I think that if you were to yeah do this model in a lot of different ways, you could probably get those different shapes. Um, he really only sort of runs this for like one or two cases that are representative of kind of the average galaxy. But that would be a crazy thing to see, why we see certain galaxies certain ways. Okay. And so the negative mass particles then, they still want to go towards the positive mass, right? That was sort of that example we were talking about earlier. That's why they're not being yes. shot out in space either. So, so they're being pulled in towards the positive mass. So he makes like this important intuitive distinction. Like if you had a negative mass particle right here on Earth and you let go of it, it would still drop. It would still like fall towards the ground. That's what's weird. Whoa. Yeah. So the negative mass is being pulled in towards the galaxy. But then as it's coming in on itself, they're all repelling each other. So it's kind of this natural equilibrium where it's getting pulled in by positive mass and pushed out equally by all the other negative mass. So that's why it forms a halo and stays there. Man, I'm kind of speechless hearing this. It's like sending my mind in all these different directions. I, I told you it'd make your head spin. experiments. Yeah, and you what's, did. What's cool is in his N-body model, so not just the theoretical side of it, now he's shown on the computer, the galaxy that formed on his computer has a flat rotation curve. Really? Yes, like what you see in reality. Wow, because like the Milky Way, for example, is it's like a flat spiraling disk, right? Sorry, flat rotation curve meaning that the relationship between oh. the velocity and radius as you get out to the far reaches of the galaxy is flat. It's not decreasing the way you expect it to. Okay. And so he also shows this picture of like the final state of this simulation. And I want to show you this to you because have you ever seen those crazy videos where they're like, oh, look how big the universe really is. And it's like zooming out further and further don't you know that that's all I do during the day instead yeah. of doing research? Great procrastination thing. So, And it yeah. zooms out further and further. And like you start to see that all these galaxies are co like coalesced into clusters. And then those clusters sort of form like these filaments. And like everything. Oh, I haven't seen that. That's oh, you've really never cool. seen this? Oh, well, it's like everything kind of looks like the way you see like all these brain cells would interconnect, something like that. Sort of like the either the bigger you get or the smaller you get, everything starts to look the same. Right. It's like this big web scale. of kind of like interconnected like clusters of galaxies. So he shows Whoa. this, uh, how all the matter turned into like these actual structures. And it looks just like those videos that you see. Yeah, that looks like I'm looking at this picture and it looks like it could be a cell culture of neurons when you're looking at like a neuron stain or like a snapshot of the universe with of a like bunch the of observable galaxies. universe at a scale of you know 20 quadrillion light years i don't know i'm making up numbers but wow that's cool yeah so apple apple should buy his algorithm to make new screen visualizers yeah exactly negative mass itunes things <laughs> <laughs> oh man so this simulation that he ran is super fascinating it has some really like cool initial off the bat results it's not really representative of like a full galaxy or a universe or anything because it's only 50,000 particles you'd really want to run this simulation for like millions and millions of particles and try to actually simulate conditions that could form a galaxy more okay. closely something on some big supercomputer and right right yeah, this was like he literally ran this on his laptop and he did that intentionally so that anyone could download this code and run it on their laptop it's open source wow have you downloaded it i have not Something for I got, winter break. I got my own work to do, man. <laughs> don't don't <laughs> let me fall into this rabbit hole. Okay, okay. But he, you know, he and he keeps calling it his, this toy model. You know, just as like a way of making very clear that this does not prove anything. It's just 
It's just sort of like a thought experiment that has a lot of very interesting natural consequences. That's cool. I like that he's honest about the results. Yes. And that's something that I found so good about this paper is that he was very honest at every stage of this. Like in the article that he wrote beforehand and in this paper several times, he's always saying like, look, this is just an idea. It's something that's that's worth looking into. And I'll give you some some quotes about that. He said, what is clear is that this new theory generates a wealth of new questions. So as with all scientific discoveries, the adventure does not end here. In fact, the quest to understand the true nature of this beautiful, unified, and perhaps polarized universe has only just begun. Wow. So he's basically just saying, like, this theory opens some doors. Let's not just throw it out because it's unintuitive. Let's actually look into this and just see if, you know, maybe this could... And he wants people to go and, like, revisit all these other things like string theory and everything with the potentiality of negative mass in mind. And he says, not because I'm calling into question any of the other theories. I just think it's a useful exercise because he cites several times throughout the last, even like the last 15 years where some results have been found that could be interpreted as negative masses and the authors even said as much, but didn't really take it anywhere. He literally cites 10 studies since 2003 that have, quote, puzzling results that have indications of negative mass being observed. Wow. That's really neat because it sort of brings back this analogy of science's like route finding with a map you know they teach you this in so many of the math classes too like there are multiple ways to solve a problem like there are multiple ways to get from point a to point b and it's like if you're only approaching these problems with string theory you could still probably come up with an explanation but it takes you on this really long route right and that'll be so fascinating to see if like maybe with negative mass these explanations become like more straightforward and straight you know a straighter trajectory from a to b and really developing into one of those simple, elegant solutions like you were talking about at the beginning. Right. So a good example here he he provides is that he talks about a study where, you know, I mentioned that they observed that the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate by observing galaxies further and further away. What they're really observing is they're looking at a supernova in a galaxy, which are fairly common. And they're using the light from the supernova, which they they know what to expect from a supernova. So by observing the change from the expectation, that's how they can tell how fast it's going. And so there was one of these studies that was looking at the redshift of these supernova. And in that study, the authors found that if they relaxed the constraint where they assumed that all mass in the universe has to be positive, by relaxing that constraint, they end up with this result that gives quote-unquote unphysical values indicating a negative mass density of the universe. But then they say like, but that's not possible because we know that's not true. They're essentially testing their assumption and then they say, but the answer becomes unphysical, therefore our assumption is valid. But it actually could be the assumption is invalid and the unphysical answer is correct. That's really interesting. So this actually just jogs up an example of this that I heard about recently, this case of metamaterials for electromagnetic waves. So positive indices of refraction have been known for a long time, like when you're looking at how an electromagnetic wave travels from one material to another. Okay, is that like refracts? Is that like how light bends when it goes through a piece of glass or something? Yeah, exactly. Okay. okay. You know, it refracts. And so uh, you can look at the different properties of materials, the dielectric properties. And in the 60s, there was this Russian mathematician, Victor Veselago, Veseligo. I don't know how to pronounce it. But he essentially proved that there are these materials that could come up with essentially a negative index of a refraction. Whoa. And did people kind of say like, 
you're crazy. Yeah, but and essentially, as the story goes, like his PhD advisor was like, well, "We're not going to flunk you because all your math is right, but like, <laughs> you know, physically, this is impossible." It, and does it turn out he's correct? Yeah. So it took almost thirty or forty years, and then in two thousand, a researcher actually experimentally demonstrated that these exist. You can actually physically create this. That's amazing. And so go Victor. Yeah, go Victor, right? And so it it sparked this whole another area of research, but it just goes to show that like you shouldn't just dismiss these things when there's right. mounting evidence that it could be real. Yeah, well, I've been recently I've been reading there's this cool book by um by Isaac Asimov where he mm-hmm. kind of gives like a short biographical blurb on like a bunch of different scientists throughout history. Oh man, his books are so good. Yeah, it's really cool and like a you know, it starts in ancient times. And like, you know, there was this guy, Democritus, who told everyone, like, I think the world is made up of atoms. Like, I think that everything, if you look down on a really fine scale, it's just a bunch of little like balls. And everyone was like, okay, dude. Like, (laughs) no one believed him. Everyone was like, no, we know that everything is made up of fire, water, earth, and air, like clearly. Yeah. And then like his theories kind of just got like tossed aside because everyone was like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And it wasn't until I forget who, Dalton or something. In like the 17 or 1800s that finally he was proven right. Wow. You know, so like for almost 2000, 3000 years. Yeah. And it's not just like scientists at the very upper echelon who are responsible for like these things not happening. It's like popular acceptance. Like you and I have taken physics. Everyone listening to this took physics in high school and we all kind of have an intuitive understanding of how mass works. And so anyone, when they hear the idea of negative mass is going to be immediately revolted by it. Maybe immediately repelled. Repelled by it. Exactly. Because we're all such positive masses, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we don't want negative mass in our lives. But, I wouldn't you know, know so how to handle it. It's not just like battles between the top physicists. It's also like public acceptance matters a lot. Yeah. And I guess coming up with a way to communicate it, like every time you say we know, like what, is that, what does that really mean? And do we actually know it or has it just been passed down to us? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can go, you can go so far down into so many different conversations on this i won't even get too started but think of like heliocentrism is it a great example everyone knew that the universe revolved around the earth for so long but it's like that wasn't true just because everyone knew that it was true didn't actually make it true no it's actually in that isaac asimov book he's got like one little throwaway line i think it had to do with the heliocentric thing and he says that one of these ancient scientists had the initial intuition that we probably revolve around the sun instead of the other way around and he was like it's important to point out like how big of a leap this is to like come up with that idea on your own because like you think that it's ridiculous because you believe the earth revolves around the sun but you were told that when you were a kid and kids will believe anything. That's like it's like kind of a cheeky little statement he makes but then you think about it and you're like yeah, I mean, we learn and believe scientific facts that are facts, but to some degree it's like indoctrination, you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the whole realm of epistemology is just really interesting because like you would say that's very scientific, but it's almost like a bigger leap of faith to say like, I trust these observations more than like all the social pressure around me and for my everything, entire life. Right. And everything that I've learned so far. Yeah. Know? And that's what I think makes this guy, Jamie Farns, like a really great mind. And reading this, it's very clear, like he's very willing to let go of his preconceived notions. Wow. That's a really inspiring paper. It is. And that actually segues perfectly into a quote that comes up right near the end of his paper. He says, as scientists, we aim to be motivated purely by the scientific evidence alone and endeavor to remain entirely uninfluenced by confirmation bias. 
we have thus allowed ourselves to indulge in this unconventional thought experiment. I think that sums up our whole conversation there perfectly. Yeah, we should have just brought him in. To <laughs> we should have. The episode. Man, he's a better scientist. He'd probably be a better podcast host. Oh, let's just give up. Yeah, let's just let's just give up, man. No, we have to continue. So we're running kind of long here, but I just want to say at the very end, he proposes a way that you could directly validate this theory. So we talked about that runaway motion where mm-hmm. the negative mass particle is going to chase a positive mass particle. They will keep accelerating until they hit something. And so if they keep accelerating to this like extreme speed, they're going to give off some sort of energy as a result. And you'd expect to see that energy at a given like rate. You'd see some frequency of like these very high energy waves coming in and hitting the Earth. So we could actually observe those like with a telescope. And so he says um, that could explain some of these like extremely high energy observations that we've made before. And it also could lead to this is another one where it's kind of diving into like this deep physics stuff that I don't know, but is clearly like jargon among them. He says this could lead to the discovery of the so-called oh my God particle, which I guess is some like proposed theoretical particle out there that exists. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's called the oh my God particle. (laughs) I loved it. OMG. OMG. That's a great way to sum it up too. I like that he actually has a recommendation for experimentally exploring this idea. Yeah. And so I think all it would take is someone to develop this theory a little more, make a prediction on how often you'd see given energy and then just go out and, and look for it. So cool. Yeah, let's hope that that happens. But that's that's kind of where the paper ends up is with that. So I hope that I didn't drop your brain on the floor too hard with this because I certainly did some picking up of my own brain after I finished the paper. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, it fell on the floor. I had to dust it off a bit, but <laughs> it's back. Well, that's really cool. So how did the news headlines do then? So the news was mostly pretty decent on this one. Uh, That motherboard story is probably the best one that I read. We'll post a link to that on the website. It it was a very solid article. It summed up the proposed theory, all the implications, and kind of like told the story of this research pretty well. There was another one on phys.org that said, bringing balance to the universe, new theory could explain missing 95% of the cosmos. Um, This was a pretty good article. It was more technical than the other ones that I saw. So if you're looking for like a little bit deeper of a dive, that would be a good one to read. This article from Express Dark matter mystery solved. Dark fluid could permeate the universe and keep it together. Extremely misleading headline. It's obviously not solved. Who knows if it will ever be solved? This is just one theory among many. The headline itself seems contradictory, too. It says it's proved, and then it says this dark fluid could do it. Could permeate, yeah. And so then, so it's got the clickbait headline, and then you open it up, and there's an auto-playing video of something that has nothing to do. And so I was, like, already on a bad foot with this article. And then actually reading it, it was very sparse and like didn't really offer any explanation of what was going on. And it was it was just pretty obvious that the person who wrote this article didn't even really attempt to understand the research at all. Like there was one or two like factually incorrect statements there and it was just short and I don't know. Get your news somewhere else if you come across this one. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it seems like even if you were a well-written news article in this case, like the paper itself is so dense, it would be hard to capture it without just rewriting the whole paper, you know? Right. And that's why I think the fact that Jamie Farns wrote a news article on this himself was very helpful. I think that that, it made a very good primer for the subject. You know, it didn't fully encapsulate the research that he put in the paper. I think he wants people to still go read the paper, but it's a great introduction to the topic. Like he gives a couple intuitive examples that help you understand the concept of negative mass. Um, He talks about Einstein's assumptions and then throwing out those assumptions and then 
And then that's where I got that quote about him saying that this theory generates a wealth of new questions. And so we must, we must pursue that. So I'm sure that that helped a lot of the, you know, it helped me. And I'm sure mm-hmm. it helped a lot of the journalists reporting on this to really be able to wrap their head around it before they dove into this paper and, and tried to digest it. Yeah, that, that seems like a really good method for actually improving science communication and getting the ideas out there for the general public as well as the actual experts in your field. Definitely. Well, thanks so much. That is an awesome article. And I have plenty of food for thought the next probably several decades of my life, hopefully, as I'm thinking about what negative (laughs) mass actually is. You'll be on your deathbed and, oh, I finally got it. (laughs) Right when I croak. Yeah. Well, we're really happy to welcome Andy MacDeasy to the grad student highlight for this episode. As you mentioned before, Andy is a PhD student at the University of Washington Department of Civil Engineering, but we'll let Andy describe his own research for you. Hey guys, this is Andrew MacDeasy. I am a second year PhD student. I'm in the Department of Civil Engineering at the University of Washington. My research is focused mainly on this natural phenomenon that we refer to as earthquake-induced soil liquefaction. Liquefaction can occur during relatively large seismic events, and it occurs when loosely deposited sands lose their strength after a significant amount of ground shaking. When they do this, they behave essentially as kind of like a quicksand, which can cause really tremendous ground settlements and large lateral movements of ground surfaces, generally kind of on the order of a meter or multiple meters. As you might imagine, ground deformations of this magnitude can cause pretty tremendous damage to structures like buildings, bridges, uh, underground pipelines, um, and earth dams. You might say it's a pretty damn big problem. Uh, But what you might not know is that it's also generally one of the largest contributing mechanisms to earthquake-related damage. While we've gotten pretty good, I'd say really good, at understanding how and why liquefaction occurs, uh, we still have a ways to go in terms of being able to reliably and accurately predict its occurrence in future earthquakes. Uh, And that's kind of what my research is focused on. It's getting better at predicting uh, liquefaction in future events. So I think I'd say my favorite thing about doing this research is that it has some pretty tangible impact on how we kind of design and construct the built environment. And that kind of forces me to maintain a practical aspect to my research. I still get to go down all the rabbit holes I want to go down, but it kind of acts as a kind of a sanity check on what I'm doing on a given day or week or month. All right. Well, thanks, Andy. That is really fascinating research. We're very glad to have you on the show today. You can find out more about Andy's research, as well as links to the paper we talked about and news articles on our website, paperboyspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to share this episode with a friend or on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at paperboyspod. Join us next week for another exciting edition of Paperboys. Thanks for listening. 